You're listening to the DNB Supply Show podcast, your number one resource for living the country lifestyle. This is your host, Matt Breckwald, coming to you from my place in the country to yours. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the D&B Supply Show. This is your host, Matt Breckwald, and thank you very much for being back with us here again today. Well, I will tell you what, one of the best things about living in the West and having this Western lifestyle is, of course, being able to get out into wide open spaces with elbow room, even all by yourself or just with a friend or a loved one or something like that, and go explore all of these wide open spaces. And I, I relish in it, and I know you do, too. And the thing about that is occasionally when you get out that deep, that far, just away from the vehicle, away from the road, who knows what can go wrong. You can get turned around. You can get trapped in weather. Maybe an injury could take place or something like that. And when that occurs, how in the world do you get found? How do you get brought back to civilization, to warmth and to food and to water and all of that? Well, we're going to talk about that today and offer some tips and suggestions on what you can do. A, to not get in that situation, B, to be safe and to be healthy if you do find yourself in that situation, and then C, how to get found or how to give yourself the best chance of being found if something like that comes up. So I'm going to have on Aaron Burden, and he is the Public Relations Director with the Idaho Mountain Search and Rescue Unit, which is based in Boise and operates primarily in Boise County here in southwest Idaho. Lots of tips and suggestions, and then also tips and suggestions for you if you would like to get involved in search and rescue wherever you live, who to contact, and some of the things that you should know and fitness levels you should have, or other ways that you could help out as well if whatever state of life you are in does not allow you to get out and walk six to ten miles through rough terrain on a search and rescue mission. We'll have that coming up for you here in just a moment. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming on today. I love to be here. Yeah, well, great. And you know, I don't, I don't want to just say thank you for coming on the show, but I want to say thank you to you and all of your fellow volunteers in Idaho Mountain Search and Rescue Unit for doing what you do. I mean, obviously this winter, like every other winter, is, is proof that uh, we need you guys out there helping out. It's been rather rough this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we're happy to do it and just hope that we can um, provide people with some security and can help people out. Well, you know, if you live in the West, you love to get out and explore our public lands and get out and see everything it has to offer. But when people are out and about, you know, they can find themselves in situations where they need some help. And that's where you come in. Absolutely. So what I'd like to do, Aaron, just to start off is just ask you if you could just kind of introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us what your position with Idaho Mountain Search and Rescue Unit is and and a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm the, currently in the Public Relations Director for Idaho Mountain Search and Rescue. Um, I'm also a member of the Technical Rescue Team, so we do high-angle and low-angle rope rescue. I'm also a uh, certified man tracker, so I'm on that team as well as a search specialist. I've been doing search and rescue for, go, I'm going into my fifth year at this point, been fairly active with the unit, um, been on a lot of teams, worked with a lot of people, very good people. And of course, you know, I have a real job, so I'm an electrical engineer and I do a lot of other stuff. <laughs> so your, uh, your time away from search and rescue, uh, you're working as an electrical engineer. That's correct. Now, how did you come to be involved uh, with Idaho Mountain Search and Rescue Unit? I, you know, I really wanted to actually uh, train a dog. I love training animals and I thought I'd have, do a great job at having a, a search dog. And then when I got involved, I 
looked into it and was like, you know what? I already have two dogs. I don't need a third dog. And my two dogs are not up for searching. And it's just a lot of work. So I switched gears and did the tech team. And there's lots of ways to help out. So how did you wind up being the public relations person in addition to all your other tasks? I volunteered, (laughs) much like everything else. We just need people to fill spots and are being willing to do stuff. And I happened to raise my hand that day and nobody else raised their hand. And so I ended up with it. <laughs> well, let's talk about the history of Idaho Mountain Search and Rescue Unit really quick. I'm looking at the website and I see here it says founding member of the Mountain Rescue Association all the way back to 1959. So that's pretty significant. Yeah. So the Mountain Rescue Association is uh, a national and actually international at this point since we have they have members in Canada now. Mm-hmm. Currently 3,600 members across the nation, um, hundreds of different groups all working together. And IMSRU, which is Idaho Mountain Search and Rescue, has helped uh, found it. And then in 61, we created our own unit trying to support the local area. And I've actually come to a meeting at one point and just kind of found out what everything was about. And really a well-organized team of people. You guys uh, are very, very professional in what you do. Yeah, we like to consider ourselves as volunteer professionals. People are very comforted when an organized group shows up and it's going to knows what they're doing and can take over and put in a real effort. Well, let's do this. Uh, I I love getting the introduction and finding out a little bit about you and a little bit more about Idaho Mountain Search and Rescue Unit. I want to take our first break uh, because when we come back, I want to get tips from you on ways people can avoid situations where they need your help or if they do need your help, what they can do to make it as easy as possible for you to help out. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. No matter where work takes you, D&B Supply makes it easy to get the job done with DeWalt FlexVolt Tools. With advanced battery technology, DeWalt FlexVolt Tools gives you the power of freedom to work without cords. For construction, remote job sites, and outdoor projects, the heavy-duty FlexVolt line offers everything from hammer drills to table saws to air compressors and more. So get out there and get to work with DeWalt FlexVolt Power Tools. Available at your favorite d B Supply. It's a pretty super life here at DMB Supply, even for dogs and cats, because we now carry Wildology, the only pet food with Super Life Pro, a live probiotic blended with superfoods. Wildology is filled with the good stuff your pet needs to support a healthy body and immune system, like wholesome proteins, kale, chia seeds, and blueberries. Because a healthy pet makes for a happy pet. Unleash your pet's superpower and pick up Wildology cat and dog food at your favorite DMB Supply. Well, Aaron, I wanted to take that break so we could kind of start fresh with some tips and some advice. But my first question for you and for everybody out there who likes to get out into the backcountry is before somebody takes a trip and heads out on a hike, on a motorcycle ride, or whatever it may be going into the backcountry, what should they be doing to prepare? So a couple of things. Probably the main thing is to look at the weather of where you're going and what potential... uh, elements you're going to be in. You know, Idaho is an amazing place, but you can be, you know, you can go from 80 degrees down to 30 degrees in the span of going from day to night, in which case, are you prepared for that? Are you ready for, you know, freezing temperatures at night, even though it's t-shirt weather during the day? Mm -hmm. So really look ahead at what conditions and if something happens, do you have the clothes, food, water, to stay out a little longer than you intended. 
Now, is there is there something that you recommend or uh, pieces of gear that you recommend that that folks always have with them when they go, like some sort of a kit that people should put together and any time they're going to the backcountry, make sure they have that? Yeah, so we, we typically talk about the 10 essentials, and that would be, you know, a map and compass. So you have some way of navigating, you know. That can be also a GPS unit, some way, some means of navigating from where you are to somewhere else. Sunscreen, sunglasses, especially in winter when you get snow blindness, uh, being out all day. Extra clothing, you know, a change of clothes. Uh, cotton, when it gets wet, doesn't, it really sucks the heat from you, never dries. So think about the clothing you wear and just bring layers in case it gets cold. Mm-hmm. Headlight or a small flashlight so that if it does get dark, you can still find your way. First aid supplies, you know, basic moleskin for blisters, uh, small first aid in terms of band-aids, things like that. And of course, uh, any prescriptions you might be on. If you're taking specific medication that you need to take every 12 hours, well, if you end up spending the night out, you're not taking that medication, which can make your uh, difficulties and your current condition way worse. Mm Some sort of a fire starter, storm matches are amazing. You can douse them in water. They still light right back up. Extra food, uh, water, of course. Maybe a knife. They can come in handy. A form of shelter, you know, a black garbage bag. That's typically like the three mil construction bags make great shelters. Okay. You can turn them into ponchos. You can turn them into a makeshift tarp. They have a lot of uses and really don't weigh anything or take up much space. So it sounds to me like if if people like to get out and, and get into the backcountry, they should just kind of have a bag put aside with this stuff in it they can throw on their back or whatever when they're going to head out so they make sure they don't forget it. Absolutely. You brought up having a map and compass, and I really enjoy navigating off of a map and compass, but it's it's a perishable skill, it seems to me. Like, I've done it before and done it well, but if I were to go out and try and do it right now, I would have to kind of reteach myself. So when it comes to that, are you wanting people to be able to kind of triangulate positions and things like that, or just get a general feel of where they're at and know how to go north because they know north is the general direction they need to go? Typically, the best way is, A, you know, no map is useful unless you can get an idea of where you are. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have a starting place, a map isn't very useful. So the, at a basic level, being able to look at a map and then look at your surroundings and try to get a general idea of where you are on the map mm-hmm. so that you can then navigate in a specific direction is really at the level that you want to at least be at. So that if you do find yourself, oh, I need to get out of here, you can just go, okay, that peak is over there. This corresponds to this. And you can get yourself going in the right direction. And what kind of maps do you suggest that people have? Is there is there a particular type that's better than another? Topographical maps are really what you want to look at. Things that actually show the elevation, because they're going to be what's going to tell you where the ravines are, where water is, and where the different mountains are. And that's going to be about the only way you can really estimate at your current location. So where can those be obtained? Are, are they the type that you need to buy, say, at the Forest Service office or the BLM office? Um, you can certainly do that. Uh, REI also carries them. But there are also multiple free places uh, online. Sartopo has them. Um, GPS Depot carries a bunch of free topographical maps mm-hmm. of the entire country. Um, there are many locations to get 
free. And there's also many apps that on your phone that you can download free maps and do that. Even Google Maps lets you download certain areas. So uh, you can have it on your phone, but just be careful. Uh, the phone could get wet or <laughs> you could lose your battery. And yeah. uh, all of a sudden yeah. you don't have it any longer, right? Right. Okay. That is the big concern about phones. Now you mentioned cotton as a fiber that's not great in a survival type situation. So what's a good alternative? Wool is an amazing um, material, especially the new merino wool is very comfortable and nice. Bamboo's turning out to be a pretty nice one, but you know, your basic synthetics are also very good. Any athletic gear is typically fast drying. Mm-hmm. Anything that says fast drying or quick wicking is the type of materials you really want to go with. And is that for every piece of clothing from outerwear down to base layers and even underwear and socks that you're recommending something other than cotton? Yes. So even um, underwear, if it gets wet, you know, you're just going to have this wet cloth against your skin that's going to be trying to suck your heat away to dry Mm -hmm. um, and it's not going to be able to do it. So you're going to stay permanently wet, which is not a condition you want to face out here at night. Makes a lot of sense. Well, let's take our second break. When we come back, I want to ask you about common mistakes that people in the past have made and how we can avoid those. All right. Sounds good. You wear jeans, but you live in Levi's. At D&B Supply, we've got a pair to fit you just right. Iconic and hardworking, Levi's are legendary. Worn by cowboys, rock stars, and everyday people, we carry different washes, styles, and sizes for both men and women. These jeans are ready for anything your day brings, from working outside to a night on the town. The denim legacy lives on every time you put them on. So pick up some Levi's at D&B. For work, play, or a little bit of both this winter, stop by D&B Supply for Wrangler gear. From flannel line jeans to stylish shirts and jackets, fit for the field or a night out, Wrangler has you covered. Established in 1947 with the spirit of courageous individuality, Wrangler apparel is designed to last and look good to boot. With new styles and great fits, it's clothing that wears well no matter what the season or what life throws at it. So stop by your favorite D&B and get covered this winter in Wrangler gear. All right, Aaron. Well, let's talk about common mistakes that people have made before and how folks going out into the backcountry can avoid those mistakes. And the ones I've got in mind are people getting lost, people getting injured. What have you seen with your experience with search and rescue that that you could tell people to, you know, look out for these things or try not to make this happen? So uh, this is probably going to surprise you, but probably the most common mistake and the hardest thing for once you're lost or injured is that people don't tell friends or family where they've gone or when they're going to be back. So what ends up happening is we get called a few days later after someone's gone missing or is injured and they have a vague idea of where they went. But then Idaho is a very large area and it might end up being 10 square miles that we have to search Mm -hmm. with very little information and being days behind. It makes everything far more dangerous, far more treacherous. So the most common mistake is not telling friends, family, somebody where you're going and then when you expect to be back. So why is it that people don't notify someone? You know, they just don't think anything's going to happen. They don't think about it. They go out all the time and, you know, might, they might find it annoying to have to be constantly updating somebody. And, you know, I've gone out to this one location, gone hunting, you know, every year for the last 20 years, nothing's ever gone wrong. But, you know, it only takes one time to go wrong, and then nobody knows that that's where you went this day. Mm-hmm. 
or uh, unfortunately this last search we had, you know, nobody knew he was gone until three days later. And that's very difficult then for searchers and um, other rescue first responders to try to catch up to somebody who's got three days out. So the other one is um, when you're, when people are get themselves into a situation, people have a tendency to want to keep going versus stopping or going back. So people constantly always think that going forward is easier than going back. They know how horrible going back is, what was behind them. Uh So they think that they're going in the right direction. It's got to be easier. They've got to be so close to where they need to be. And unfortunately, a lot of times they're not. So people will constantly be on the move. And being on the move is very difficult from a searcher's perspective. We actually had a search for a hunter who we estimated he probably hiked 40 miles in the three days he was out. That's very difficult for us to search an area, say, okay, he's not here, and then move on to another area, but he moved back into the area we just searched. We're not going to go back to look there because we assumed he's not there. So searching for somebody on the move becomes very difficult and complicates things a lot. And so like in that example you're talking about, that hunter knew that he or she was lost, but they just kept trying to find their way out? Right. They thought they knew where they were, so they would try one thing. That didn't work. Then they thought, oh, okay, I'm pretty sure I'm here. Try that. And, you know, it just keeps going and going. And if you're lost, you're you're lost. And typically, moving from that location isn't going to benefit you any. Mm -hmm. And it just increases the likelihood that you're going to injure yourself, or the, the weather is going to get worse and you're not actually prepared, you don't have a shelter, mm-hmm. um, you're not ready to deal with the cold or anything like that. Instead, you're wearing yourself out, you're burning what little energy reserves you have, you're very possibly sweating, so now you're dealing with hypothermia because you're wet, and you can very much make yourself worse. Now, you mentioned injuries. What, what mistakes do people make that lead to... I guess, unnecessary injuries or injuries that could have otherwise been avoided. So in terms of, there's no real common injury that people do It's that could be prevented. It's typically people just end up slipping off of a trail, you know, a wrong step. It's those type of things that you can't prevent. You can't really look out for. It's probably going to happen. And, you know, it's just the nature of going down a trail. Mm-hmm. It can be dangerous and you know, try not to do it alone is probably another common one. You know, if you're alone, it's much more difficult than to get out. Self-rescue is always the best rescue because it does take a lot of time for search and rescue to A, be notified and B, get out there and start looking. So there are people that want to go hunting alone, want to go hiking alone, or they want to go hunting or hiking and they have nobody to go with. So they're going alone. So that is already not ideal, uh, but certainly it's a reality that, that folks are going to do that. So when folks are out there by themselves, should they limit their behavior, limit the distance they're going or something like that because they don't have that buddy system in place? Perhaps not limit, but be more wary of what you're doing and may perhaps take less risk. You don't need to go climb down that ravine necessarily. You know, Find a nice, safe way to go around it realize what your limitations are for yourself and what you're doing. And there are devices that also help if you're out alone. Things like spots where it's an emergency GPS beacon that broadcasts to a satellite and mm-hmm. lets search and rescue know that, that you need help. They can help a lot and we've used them quite a lot to 
find people, but we've also had people disappear that were using them. And unfortunately, it didn't help. But, you know, again, it's a lot of preparation, risk versus reward. You know, what what are you doing that's going to limit what you could happen to you or the dangers that you put yourself in? Yeah, that makes sense. And so just kind of weighing those things as, as you plan your trip and you plan your outing. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about what people should do uh, if they do get lost or if they get injured. What would help you guys out in helping them, okay? Okay. Know what boots work as hard as you do? Georgia boots, and you'll find a great selection at D&B Supply. If you're on your feet all day, Georgia boots knows the feeling. That's why they've designed exclusive comfort systems that cushion and support down to the bottom of your soles. While on the surface, they shield you from tough conditions with one of the most durable leathers out there. See why they earned the nickname of America's Hardest Working Boots and pick up a pair of Georgia boots at your favorite D&B Supply. The chicken or the egg? D&B knows what comes first. It's Neutrina NatureWise Layer Chicken Feed, which leads to both a healthier chicken and fresh, hard-shelled eggs. With over 90 years of experience raising healthy poultry, Neutrina NatureWise gives your hens wholesome, natural nutrition they can sink their beaks into. Free-range and home-raised flocks gobble this expertly designed and formulated layer feed in pellets and crumbles. So flock to your favorite D&B supply to pick up a bag of Neutrina NatureWise Layer Chicken Feed for balanced nutrition. Well, Aaron, those were some great tips on what to do when you're planning your trip and kind of how to behave or how to keep track of where you are and what you're doing when you're out. Now, what happens if you do get lost or you do get injured? What can somebody do to maximize their chance of being located, say, by Idaho Mountain Search and Rescue Unit? So the best thing to do is if you're on a trail is to stay near the trail. Deciding to go do a shortcut off trail and because you think the road is that way is a great way of us making being much more difficult to find you because our first thing we'll do is we search the trails or the area that you're supposed to be in. So the second one is to just stay put, stay where you're supposed to be and not wander off or head off into some other area. Another one would be to find shelter, either under a tree, somewhere where you can get out from under the elements, either from the heat. Another thing to think about is, so you really don't need to worry about food and water for quite some time. Food, you've got three weeks before you really need to start. You're worried about food. Water is three days, so do keep that in mind. But you don't need to be going and deciding you need to go hunt deer or something to stay alive because you're (laughs) out for a night. We have had people go looking to kill things to eat that night for staying one night out. And it's just, you don't need to do that. So you're uncomfortable because you're Uh, hungry, but you're not, uh, you're not in mortal danger from starvation. (laughs) No, you're, you're not in any risk of starving to death for uh, spending the night out. Okay. You know, make sure you have some way of signaling, you know, a mirror or a fire, you know, Mm -hmm. try not to set the forest on fire. (laughs) Right. Also a good one. But, you know, in winter, it's pretty hard to keep a fire going, so you don't really have to worry about burning the forest down either. Sure. Well, now, how, how can people get involved? If, if people out there listening are like, this sounds like a great organization and, and I'd like to help out, how, how can people help out? So, best way would be to just check us up on um, Facebook or on our website. We do routine orientations for people who are interested. You can come to an information session and find out all about us and what we um, expect from our members. 
And are there any particular skill sets or anything like that that are very valuable to you that you're looking for? Not particularly. I mean, we have lots of people with lots of different skills. We have people who don't necessarily go out tromping through the woods. You know, some level of physical fitness is always good because it's treacherous terrain. Being able to hike in off-trail, bushwhacking and dangerous conditions is always positive. But we also have lots of people who work ops, who are on the radio, who uh, take communications and who are going over maps and helping plan out the next search area. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a large range of skills and things. People with ATVs are always very useful. Uh, people with snowmobiles are also highly desired because uh, we currently don't have any. So being okay. able to get out into the field and more distances is always uh, nice to have. What other pieces of equipment? Like are folks with horses valuable to you, boats, anything like that? We typically don't uh, do much with boats. We actually have one member who has a boat for uh, the canine team when they go and do uh, searches along rivers and the lakes. Horses are difficult in the sense that unless you have a group with horses, one person on a horse, we always want to send at least two to three people in a group. So mm -hmm. we just have one person with a horse, they're stuck walk going at a walking pace. And then a lot of our searching is off trail in very um, steep, dangerous conditions with a lot of deadfalls to horses. It's very treacherous for them. Gotcha. Okay. Now you mentioned a reasonable level of fitness. So what kind of fitness should somebody have or be able to achieve if they want to be out in the field actually searching? Typically, uh, we expect every member to be carrying around a 30, 35 pound pack, which includes a number of items that require everyone to have, including water for yourself, your subject, food for yourself and a subject. So being able to carry that for you know, upwards of six to 10 miles for a hike. And it can be a pretty strenuous hike. We expect to carry and go for a number of hours. But, you know, at the same token, um, we do have people who just stay at the base and help with other means. Mm -hmm. But out in the field, it, it is a pretty physically demanding activity. Let's take our last break. And when we come back, let's talk about training and what people will learn if they volunteer with your organization, okay? Okay. Feeding your pets lifelong health starts with science. And that's exactly what's behind Hills Science Diet. Made by vets, scientists, and nutritionists, Hills Science Diet offers biology-based nutrition for all pets with formulas for every age, size, and special requirement or need, like joint health and weight loss that create differences you can see, feel, and trust. No wonder it's the number one veterinarian recommended pet food. So pick up Hills Science Diet at D&B Supply today. Know when they say good fences make good neighbors? When you've got Bayland Country gates and panels to really fence your livestock in. Also, when you let your neighbor in on the great deals you can find on Bayland Country at D&B. Made from steel and designed for stamina, Bayland Country gates and panels are tested to match up to robust ranch life. So instead of mending all those fences, round up a whole new one with Balin Country at D&B Supply. Well, Aaron, thanks for all the information on volunteering and what you're looking for, what's helpful to your organization. Let's talk about the next step. So once somebody has gone through orientation and they've been accepted in and they're going to be able to volunteer with you, what kind of training will they receive? So we cover uh, a lot of subjects. We actually train three evenings a month and one weekend day. Every month we do search and rescue training, which is, it can be ops, it can be patient packaging, first aid. We help people get their CPR. 
certificate. And then we also then cover search techniques, uh, map and compass, communications, all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then every month we also cover medical issues. So we go hypothermia, first aid, splinting, high altitude sickness, a huge range of uh, heat illnesses for the summer. We go through a huge range of things. And then whatever search and rescue topic we do cover, we then have a field session. So that might be a mock mission where we pretend that we have somebody missing and or rescue and we go perform that with different roles and different leaderships. Or we'll do, you know, throw everybody out with GPSs or a map and compass and go, okay, you need to go get to these locations and go for it. Mm-hmm. See if you get there. <laughs> okay. How many volunteers do you have total? Currently, you know, it's always in flux, but I think we're around 105. But you could probably say about half of those are people who go in the field. The rest are people who help in the background and fundraising and other uh, types of activities. Now, it sounded like you had another piece of training you wanted to talk about, and I cut you off. What was that? So what I was talking about was general training. We also, the tech team then meets an extra evening and a weekend day to cover all of the rescue techniques in terms of rope rescue. Man trackers meet every uh, two weeks and do two to four hours. The canine team meets every week and they put a ridiculous amount of hours in every all the time to keep their dogs active and knowing what they're doing. And when there is a call, when there is a, a need to help, uh, do you expect to have 100% of, of your volunteers respond or does life get in the way and so you get 50 or 60% or some percentage, I guess? So whenever we have a call, it's sent out to everybody and then whoever can respond calls in and says, okay, I'll, I will be there. And so, you know, we're all volunteers. So everybody has a job and life and other uh, things expected of them. So they have those obligations and responsibilities and may not be able to respond. Mm -hmm. Uh, Typically during a weekday, we may get around six to, well, around six people responding for a weekday. Mm -hmm. Weekends are better because people typically have weekends free. So we may get 30. If we're contacted by an organization asking us to do a search on a specific day or turnout, it's much higher because we're giving people a couple of days to plan for it. Mm -hmm. So our listening audience is going all the way from Pendleton, Oregon, all the way down to Twin Falls, Idaho and beyond. So your geographic area, how large is that? What part of that footprint would Idaho Mountain Search and Rescue Unit cover? So we are primarily covering for Boise County, but we also... Because we're an independent organization, we're not tied to a sheriff's department. Any sheriff office can call us up and ask for our help. So this year alone, we've been up to Washington State. We've been to Oregon. Last year, we went down to Utah. We routinely go to Elmore County, to Jim County, Blaine County, Custer County, Hawaii County. <laughs> okay. So we'll go anywhere that we're we're asked. So we can range quite a bit. So that leads to my next question. So folks out there listening who are not in your typical coverage area, should they expect there to be an organization like Idaho Mountain Search and Rescue Unit where they're located? Or does that purview fall to the sheriff's department and they don't necessarily have a volunteer organization like we do here? They don't have an organization like we do here, but what they will, they do have Almost every sheriff's department has a search and rescue group made up of volunteers that they do mobilize and get out there. It's just Mm -hmm. not quite 
at the same organization level or size that Nansaru is at. Okay. So but it's a lot of people still out there helping and trying to help as many people as they can. Got it. So somebody listening to this right now who doesn't live anywhere near Boise, they could go down to their local sheriff's department and say, hey, I would like to help out. Is there a way that I can assist in search and rescue situations? Absolutely. Very good. Well, I know I could I could sit and park on all the cool technical stuff that you learn and talk about the, that the whole episode. I'm not going to do that, but I had to take the opportunity to ask you about man tracking. For some reason, that stands out to me. So <laughs> what is that and how does that help in search efforts? So man tracking is the study of human footsteps through the wilderness or through the environment, be they uh, a warehouse even. So we train looking for footprints on concrete floors and we're down on the floor with flashlights looking for things. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it typically allows us to give it a direction of travel, which then allows the uh, SAR managers to then dictate where the search effort is going to be. When you're looking at a huge radius of, and by huge radius, a one mile radius is a very large area to search. Sure. If you can narrow that down into a cone of direction, you can put a lot more resources where it's going to do the most good. So man trackers will clear a vehicle, look to see which direction they were going, and then try to follow that as best they can to show that, okay, these per this person went this way. Let's put the dogs and everybody else out ahead of them and see if we can resolve this a little faster. And I think I read on your website that while the people who are part of your man tracking unit, they're not necessarily there at the location of the person you're looking for. Certainly, they're contributing a large part to, to finding that person. Yes, absolutely. So if any team out there finds a clue, a footprint, we'll typically try to get a man tracker out there to look and then start from there and if, see if that matches the age, the general uh, direction and indicators that it could possibly be our subject. So that could give us a, a new point of reference on where this person might be. Well, Aaron, what kinds of new technology have you been able to incorporate into search and rescue? So we started up a, a drone program. So we have members who carry uh, drones out into the field and then get aerial video and photos of the surrounding area looking for clues or possible evidence that someone has got, uh, moved past in an area and it allows us to get a much broaden our search area without a lot of people tromping around. Mm -hmm. And it's actually been very successful with quite a few uh, finds that were done in a, a few searches that have concluded very quickly thanks to the, our, uh, the drones. Very cool. How, how much of a range do the drones have? Like from your, from where the operator is standing, how far out can the drone go to search? Typically five miles, but that's very, it's limited by the terrain, whether or not you can get a signal. Mm -hmm. We live in quite steep terrain, so there's only so far you can go or the tree coverage really can limit it. Mm -hmm. So there are instances where, unfortunately, they're not as useful as you would hope, but there's a lot of instances where they speed up things a lot. Well, Aaron, this is great. Thank you again and to all your colleagues for what you do. And thank you for coming on and sharing this with us today. No problem. Glad to do it. Thank you all for joining us today. And here is to you and your pursuit of the country lifestyle, however you define it. For the DNB Show, I'm Matt Breckwald. <laughs>